All right, you absolute legend. Welcome to another episode of A Need to Read. I've got for you today a pretty cool conversation that I had with a guy called Merlin Sheldrake. Now, Merlin is a biologist and a writer, and he wrote a book called Entangled Life, which I was obsessed with when I was reading it. And it's opened the door to all kinds of mushroom and fungi obsession for me. So, the best kind of book. It's all about how fungi make our worlds and change our minds and shape our futures and you'll be surprised to hear what you hear about fungi whenever it is you get around to reading this book or taking the lid off pandora's box of mycology because there is a lot in there and fungi are cool so with this episode i thought what i'd do is help my listeners out because i thought at the end of this podcast you're probably going to want to grow your own mushrooms maybe Maybe that's what you're going to be into. And I thought I'd find a company that will basically get you a discount. Now, they haven't paid me. They don't need to pay me. They've just sent me some free stuff. The company that's sponsoring the show is called Urban Farm It. It's run by a guy called Elliot, who's a really sound guy. And he's trying to get people, funnily enough, to farm in an urban manner. So in my cupboard at the moment, I've got two big bags of oyster mushrooms. I've got some blue oyster mushrooms and some white oyster mushrooms. And they're being kept in the dark. I think they've got about 11 days left until they start fruiting. I mean, that might sound complicated to some people, but it's so easy. Uh, I did it and I didn't really have to try that hard. So if you're after this conversation thinking, hey, I want to get some mushrooms I want to grow my own mushrooms. I'm soon going to be growing my own shiitake mushrooms on a log. I never thought I'd say that sentence in my life. But anyway, you might, after reading this book or listening to this podcast, become obsessed with mushrooms and want to become your own amateur mycologist slash urban farmer. And I've got just a treat for you. If you go in the description of this episode, you'll see a link to the Urban Farmit website uh, and you'll get an additional 10% off um, using the code A-Need-2-Read. That's all in the description. You don't have to remember that. Uh, but also, when you register with them, you you get 10% off anyway. So it's 20% off any of your growing kits, anything they've got on the website. If you want to get into urban farming on his YouTube uh, Elliot's got quite a lot of educational content, which is good. Uh, and just to be clear, you know, they're not paying me. I just think you're going to want to do mushrooms and I want to help you do that. So if you do want to pay me and you think this podcast is good, you can go to buymeacoffee.com, uh, but you don't have to. No pressure. I hope you enjoy this conversation. You absolute legends. I might just want to suggest maybe turning down the volume on whatever device you're listening to this on by like one two or or three clicks uh just because it's a little bit loud my name's merlin sheldrake i'm a i'm a biologist and a writer and i spend a lot of time thinking about fungi a kingdom of life a very diverse kingdom of life um without which nothing on earth would look and behave as it does today yeah i was quite shocked to find that out um, as I'm sure many of your readers have been wowed and shocked by your book, it was mind blown for me to understand just what goes on underneath our feet and on our skin and inside of us that has links directly to fungi and, and what they're doing. It's, it's a cool topic to spend your life thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Uh, so you, you said you weren't fussy on whether we had the serious question first or the fun question first. So my it's a two-part question. Firstly, have you seen the la- the Last of Us? I actually I tried to watch um, 
an episode last night, but I don't have a membership of um, a subscription to Now TV, so so I didn't. So I watched the trailer, um, and I, I I've been aware of this um, when, when it was a video game, you know, because of its mm. fungal themes. Um, so maybe I'll, maybe I'll watch it in the future, okay. uh, or at least an episode or two. Yeah, or have you someone to? I I have yeah, and I used to play the game. Um, so I'm going to be judging it particularly harshly from back from my like 14, 15 year old self, uh, whoever it was who played that game. Um, but in, in that it's got fungal themes, right? And it's a, a zombie film based off of a cordyceps mushroom fungi hijacking the host. So I just wanted to get your two pence on whether you think that might be possible and where in the animal kingdom at the moment. Fungi are hijacking moving creatures. So it is a, a fungal habit um, that has arisen on multiple different occasions over the history of life. Um, we describe these things as having evolved convergently. Um, so there are lots of different fungal lineages that do this um, to insects, mm. um, importantly. Uh, and um, and so there are different strategies depending on the the you know the, the fungus um and it is an astonishing aspect of fungal life because it's a time at which um an organism which doesn't have a centralized body a centralized nervous system a centralized circulatory system um a fungus interfaces with a, a, an organism that does an animal body animal bodies are centralized on the whole there are exceptions um twitchy muscular bodies that can walk and bite and fly and um and these two bodies become continuous with one another um and such that uh, in very well studied cases like in uh with ophiocordyceps fungi and carpenter ants you know the f about 40 percent of the mass of an infected ant is fungus and uh, and the fungal behaviors uh, sorry the ant behaviors or that what seem to be ant behaviors biting onto the underside of a leaf climbing up um, a, a plant stalk becoming fascinated with heights in the first place, um, overriding its instincts to stay low to the forest floor um, for safety. Um, all of these things are actually fungal behaviors rather than ant behaviors. They are behaviors which further the uh, evolutionary interests of the fungus, not the ant. Um, so anyway, so there's a fascinating um, situation or, or, or set of situations rather. Um, but importantly, this happens in insects. Um, uh, and arthropods more generally, and uh, mammal bodies are quite different. On the whole, um, we have slightly different types of relationship with fungi because we are warmer, um, mm -hmm. and our warmth uh, helps defend us from quite a number of fungal infections. Um, so, to my knowledge, there's been no case of any of these insect puppeting fungi infecting mammals. Um, that's not to say that it hasn't happened in the past or that it's, it's, it's totally impossible. Although our bodies and our, our, our biologies are very different from those of insects. Um, maybe it could arise in the future. Who knows? Yeah. Cause I think in, in your book, you alluded to fungi across broad parts of the world are having to adjust to a warmer planet. Um, I'm sure the ground's not going to get to the human temperature at any point soon. I hope not, but they're smart and they can they can ad adapt right in a way yeah they, they 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 have persisted through the five great extinction events um 
uh, on the planet so far, uh, and they've done so. I mean, many have gone extinct, of course, but mm. the ones that have persisted have done so by being ingenious, flexible, collaborative, uh, and by changing. Um, mm. And there are um, Ophiocordyceps fungi that um, or that make a life within insects, but have become indispensable symbionts for certain insects. So, so they've changed from being a, a deadly um, zombie fungus to being um, a um, a key collaborator. And wow. there are um, relatives of the Ophiocordyceps fungi which grow and parasitize other fungi rather than insects. So there's great flexibility. Um, many fungal uh, species and lineages are characterized by great flexibility. They can do behave in a certain way in certain places at certain times and then change their tune um, in different conditions. So yeah, it's um, it's not... I mean, an, an, another thing that, to point out here actually is that our behavior is already... We know that it's affected by um, microbes, um, mm. bacteria, fungi that live in and on us. And there's a whole field called neuromicrobiology, uh, which has arisen um, to investigate what's called the gut-brain axis, the way that what happens in our gut affects the way we think and feel and behave. Um, there are very interesting um, leads in this field, and um, I'm sure the way we think about this will, will, will change a lot in the coming years. Uh, but it's not um, some strange um, you know, idea that's just happening over there in a distant corner of yeah. the, the, the story of life. You're already living our lives under the influence of um, small um, organisms that are smaller than us and that we don't think about enough. Yeah, definitely. There's an in interesting video on online of you eating oyster mushrooms grown from your book and they come from Pleurotus fungi. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. uh, how would one or how could you explain to someone how Pleurotus fungi can grow from a hardback copy of your book? When we think of fungi, we normally think of mushrooms, but mushrooms are just the reproductive structures of fungi, the place where they produce spores, which are loosely analogous to plant seeds, <clears throat> um, a, a way for fungi to disperse themselves. A way for fungi to disperse themselves over potentially large distances. Uh, but most fungi live most of their lives not as mushrooms, but as mycelial networks. And mycelial networks are branching, fusing networks of tubular cells. And they're how fungi feed themselves. So fungi don't do what animals do, which on the whole is to find food and put it in their bodies. Fungi put their bodies inside their food by growing, tunneling, um, digesting their way into um, whatever their food happens to be, which could be anything from solid rock to um, kerosene in the fuel tanks of aircraft. Um, so in the case of these oyster mushrooms on the hardback book, what's going on is that the mycelial network uh, of the Pleurotus fungus is um, growing through the book, and a book's made of wood pulp, um, and these are wood-digesting fungi. So this is, um, this is a, um, maybe like the white bread of um, the wood digesting fungus. Um, it grows its way through the pages and the covers, uh, and then when um, placed in slightly different conditions, it, it, it produces oyster mushrooms, which you can then eat um, or do whatever you want to do with. And I, I can't recall if it was the pleur pleurotus fungus that consumed nappies 
Yeah, that was actually that study in, in Entangled Life. I talk about that. Um, it's a it's a really easy fungus to cultivate. Um, it produces edible, delicious mushrooms, and it's omnivorous. Um, it has a, a, a Catholic taste, and it will eat many different things. So it's often used in these kinds of situations um, uh, to investigate to to play with. Um, it hunts nematode worms as well uh, when it's you know if it's living in some place um, without very much nitrogen, and there are worms around. It can produce um, a stalk with a toxic droplet that paralyzes nematodes uh, and allows the fungus time to, to grow in through its mouth and digest it from the inside out. So they are um, they're omnivores. Yeah. Wow. And nematode worms, are they similar to your standard British earthworm? Which, I mean, could not even be a thing. I don't know. Uh, well, there are lots of nematodes in, in Britain. Um, they're not what we think of as earthworms. <clears throat> Um, but um, many different fungi have worked out how to how to hunt nematodes. Some of them, uh, it's again, it's like the insect um, zombie fungi. It's arisen multiple times in different lineages of fungi. Some fungi produce snares that attract nematodes uh, and then inflate in a tenth of a second um, once the nematodes move through these snares uh, and then digest them. And others produce mobile cells that swim um, towards nematodes and um, attach themselves to nematodes and harpoon them with specialized cells called gun cells, um, which then allow the fungus to um, catch up and to digest the nematode. So there, there are lots of ways to um, for fungi to engage with animals, and uh, some are grizzly, um, more grizzly than others. This is all happening underneath the the feet whilst whilst we're walking along i think it was a while ago and i was reading george monbiot's book regenesis and that was the first book that introduced me to the complexity of what's underneath my feet soil i honestly just thought it was mud i thought it was mud clay various other, other things like that before i read that book and as i was on my walk that day i looked at the ground and through the concrete or not the concrete the tarmac on on the pavement there was a sprouting head or fruit of a mushroom so these things are incredibly strong they can obviously snare animals underneath our feet what why do you think it's taken so long for us to kind of pay attention to them in this way i i see historically you can see traces of mushrooms um like you had uh, part in your book about the statues in Guatemala. I, th I think it was Guatemala. Um, I've just been to Colombia recently, and a lot of what they have left of the gold in the museum in Bogota that the Spanish didn't manage to steal, uh, they have these kind of halos around their head, um, which looks similar to the fruit of a, of a mushroom. Um, so, so I guess my my question there is actually what is your understanding of, of the history of humans relationship with with fungi so it's a long history uh, any any organism alive on the planet today is impacted by fungi in some way whether directly or indirectly the whole history of plant life on land for example is a story of freshwater algae interacting with fungi um plants 
are all depend on fungi, whether fungi that live in their leaves and their shoots or fungi that live in and around their roots um, to do what they do. Soil would wash away were it not for the fungal networks that hold it together. Um, so we live in a fungal um, world. Um, so whether or not we've thought about fungi, we've been interacting with them and they've been interacting with us. Yeah. Um, there are ways in which this has been made explicit uh, and fungi have featured uh, um, in human life um, uh, and craft and art and technology for a very long time. Uh, alcohol, for example, is produced by a yeast. This is a fermentation that's overseen by a fungus, a yeast. Um, uh, and our history with alcohol, alcohol goes back a very, very long way. Likewise, cheese, um, <clears throat> soy sauce, and miso. Um, and so, yeah, the humans and fungi are, are, are an old uh, story, whether for food, for medicine, or in our efforts to cultivate um, plants in forests, woodlands, and gardens or fields. So, um, yeah, it's an old story. Uh, but it's important to note that this is a kingdom of life that hasn't had a kingdom's worth of attention by the modern sciences. Mm. Um, it was only in the late 60s that fungi were um, won their independence, taxonomically speaking, and became a kingdom of life. And um, before that, they were thought of as lower plants. Um, and were studied in unglamorous corners of botany departments. So they have definitely been neglected um, relative to um, other members of the living world. And um, and thankfully that is starting to change. Yeah. And the, they are completely different to plants in, in a way that they don't photosynthesize, right? Um, That's right. Because I, I remember in your book talking about mycelial networks um, and your time in Panama. Um, what what was that like as someone who's interested in in fungi? Obviously, you were there to do research, but to be in in Panama, in amongst the rainforest, searching for fungi networks, what, did you have any big revelations out there, or just generally, what was that like? I had a great time. I mean, it's hard to do field work um, wherever you're doing it. On the whole, you know, much of science, uh, much of well, much of uh, eco ecological field work or biological field work it consists of long days of repetitive tasks, um, uh, and indeed mine were uh, just like that uh, a lot of the time. But to spend time outdoors, to spend time outdoors as a biologist rather than in a lab, uh, I found very powerful. I spent plenty of time in labs, and um, I will no doubt do so again. Um, and um, and labs are wonderful places that allow you to ask questions that you couldn't ask anywhere else. But when you're outdoors, um, being a field biologist, there's something different because you're less in control um, than you are in a lab. In a lab, you live your life in control of the fragments of life that you study. You, you are creating um, almost every aspect of their um, habitat in a tube or flask uh, or, or however, or, or on a slide or on a a plate, however you're cultivating or studying. And, but when you're in the field or in the forest, you are inside the flask, you like everyone else. And um, the power relation is different and humility sets in and it becomes um, difficult to um, maintain the same assumptions uh, uh, about the living world and how it works. And so I found this uh, enormously helpful in my growth uh, as a human, not just as a biologist. And um, not just because I like spending time outdoors. Yeah. Um, you say you say in your your growth as 
as a human, what, in what way? The way that we ask questions about the world tells us something about ourselves. And um, if we ask questions about the world that assume um, that other organisms are like us, behave like us, um, then we're going to come to conclusions about these other life forms that reflect our assumptions. Um, if you ask questions about a world um, from a different perspective, uh, and you try to imagine from these many perspectives, these many different ways to be alive, these many different um, routes that evolution has taken, um, and you try to see organisms from um, from the perspective that they must have on the world, even though we are destined to fail at that task, um, something else starts to, starts to happen. Um, and it's harder to maintain that kind of species narcissism that we inherit. Um, uh, and it becomes a much more fascinating place. The living world becomes a place of many perspectives, uh, a place of many different ways of observing, um, uh, of which ours is only one. And so spending time outdoors in, as a field biologist helped me to to realize this, to uh, remember this. Yeah, I think well, I like what you say about like species narcissism, um, because I, I guess the the way mostly we would think about animals even though of course there are loads of animals who do things that's completely beyond our comprehension like bats with sonar dolphins the same kind of thing uh and i could have got the word sonar wrong there i i don't know got it right or wrong but it'll do <laughs> it'll do um we think of it relational to how humans experience things i guess and it correct me if i'm wrong but i think i'm getting the understanding that you've kind of stepped back from trying to think of it in relation to humans and just going straight with and letting the fungi tell you what the fungi wants to tell you? Well, not, I mean, we're never going to escape our human bodies and our senses, right? It's not something that we um, are able to do in any kind of conventional way. Um, I'm sure many of us have dreams in which it felt like we were flying. I'm sure many of us had dreams uh, in which it felt like we were swimming in the ocean, but we wouldn't be able to incorporate those in a straightforward way into scientific or academic practice. Um, but um, the, um, so it's less like, it's less like you say, and, and more just trying to, um, to peel off some calcified layers of, of, um, of, of assumptions and species narcissisms about the way that these organisms are working to think about their lives um, and to think about these highly complex organisms as sensing bodies um, bathed in rich fields of chemical information, sensory information of all sorts, um, making decisions in their way um, between alternative courses of action um, and solving problems in their way. Um, goodness knows they have many different types of problems to solve. Astonishingly mind-boggling problems, well, at least for our minds, bogglingly difficult problems. Um, uh, Astonishing relationships to maintain um, with all sorts of different organisms. Um, so just to remember that these are, are, are organisms engaged in lives that we still struggle to understand uh, and to come to these questions with some humility, I feel, can get us a really long way. Um, mm. I don't think it's a difficult thing to do. I don't think it's a, a particularly um, special thing to do. I think it's just something, I think it's good, just good manners. Yeah, yeah. I think 
thinking about it as as a complete amateur and as as a layperson, I almost fell into a bit of an existential crisis, um, because it it seems to be that fungi are so interwoven with everything. I think you you speak about the mycelial networks a lot, and you say you spend a lot of time thinking about those. Just for people listening, what what is like the span of a mycelial network? Because I guess it can go from minuscule and we can't see it to to how big so there's lots of ways to be a fungus um you know there's a whole kingdom of life that we're talking about think about the difference between a blue whale and a flea mm. um think about the difference between a, an iceberg lettuce and a um, redwood sequoia um so um some fungi produce microscopic mycelial networks that could you know, spend their life living on a speck of house dust um, and some form networks that are among the largest organisms in the world. Uh, one of the largest is um, a network of armillaria fungus uh, in the States, which sprawls over about 10 square kilometers. So, um, and everything in between. You have fungi that um, make nets, grow their mycelial networks, grow nets uh, that catch falling leaves. Um, which, so it's a way of behaving maybe a little bit more like a filter feeding animal. Um, and so there's yeah many ways to to do this many um many ways to be when you hate to be a fungus mm-hmm. um when you say there about like having nets, I noticed when I was in the Amazon, Amazon that it looked like there were lots of hairy spider legs on the floor um would that have been fungus? I know you can't say for sure, but I guess in Panama there would have been similar kind of things I'm not quite sure what you're well, I mean, it's hard to know without seeing a picture, yeah. but um, there's lots of hairy things in, in tropical forests. I mean, yeah. it could have actually been a hairy spider legs. Oh, def- um, definitely wasn't. Hair. Okay. I'm talking spread over like a 20 meter square patch oh, right. of just like a white fur. Oh, yeah. Well, that um, sounds like fungus. That sounds like mycelium. Um, okay. It could have been uh, fungal mycelium. Um, and um, but yeah, no, I need to see uh, pictures yeah. to be sure. Okay. I haven't, I haven't got any any pictures of it it was uh just like a, a passing thing that i noticed quite a few times um over there now and your work now obviously you wrote entangled life um i'm, I'm assuming you're you're carrying on research yes i have um, a research project uh, with collaborators in uh, the netherlands and um i also am working with uh, a couple of conservation and research organizations and um and so yeah this is all there's so many ways to so many questions so many answer, unanswered questions um and yeah so many uh, so many experiments to do and, and what are the questions that you're researching or, or looking into looking to refine so i'm working with an organization called the society for the protection of underground networks or spun and we're looking at um, the fungi that form relationships with plants, plant roots, um, called mycorrhizal fungi. And these are fungi that engage in sophisticated trading relationships with plants. Plants provide them with energy in the form of sugars or fats that they've made in photosynthesis. And the fungi supply the plants with nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus and, that they found by foraging in the soil. They're really good at, at um moving through cluttered obstacle courses and producing cocktails of enzymes that can digest 
and difficult materials. So um, this is a really foundational symbiosis. Um, there are lots of ways that it can happen. Uh, and Svan is um, trying to map mycorrhizal fungal communities around the world to try and um, provide some kind of firm basis on which policymakers, um, those people designing and implementing conservation projects, uh, restoration projects, can start to include these organisms uh, in their picture of the world. Because much of conservation today doesn't take, in, take into account uh, the many lives unfolding underground, which is a problem, given how important these lives are for the lives of uh, those um, above ground. Um, so Svan is it's, it's a combination of research uh, and also um, uh, advocacy for for these organisms, um, for the communities they maintain, um, and um, and really trying to, to make a, a perspective flip in the way that we think about the uh, the ecosystems of the planet. Uh, it's a bit like thinking about never thinking about um, what lives inside the oceans. Of course we do neglect what lives inside the oceans yeah. as we tend to do whenever we can't see what's going on. Um, yeah. Whether it's too small, too big, out of sight, uh, or happening on a time scale too fast or too slow. Yeah, and that is, I guess, species narcissism a little bit there as well. We like to, we, the collective we, human beings, some human beings, like to just get things out of the way, whether that be a fungal network or huge quantities of fish or absolutely and of course you know you can't be expected to protect something that you don't know exists so there is a role here for just finding out what's there um and um and then again policymakers can't protect anything that isn't under threat so you've got to work out not only who's there but how how threatened are they and um there are um yeah there are there are there are different ways to think about conservation but this more traditional way is uh, is helpful um, and um, although limited in its. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just a completely random question because my brain has just made a link and I can't remember if I read it in the book, but coral reefs, uh, is there any relation to fungi there? There are fungi that live in and around coral reefs. There are fungi that live in the ocean, uh, in sulfurous sediments at the bottom of the sea, in the bodies of sea animals, um, in seaweeds. Um, most seaweeds wouldn't be able to survive on the extreme in the extreme conditions of shorelines. And when you see seaweeds washed up on shorelines, it's, we forget how extreme that life is. Um, they live part of their life in the water, often quite cold, um, and part of their life in dry air, um, being scorched by the sun. Um, yeah. And this cycle cycling happens twice a day. So it's um. Uh, and so their 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 lives are, uh, are enabled by fungi as well. Um, so um, so there will be fungi living in and around coral reefs. Although coral coral reefs themselves aren't fungi, um, they are made up of a symbiotic relationship between organisms, um, but they aren't fungi. So I guess in in the same way that pretty much everything else that isn't directly a fungus is it relies on it to to sustain it in some way. Yeah. And you know, in the same way that all organisms depend on this intricate, dynamic um, network of relations that that is life. And, and you mentioned Spun there, but I know you work with another organisation called the Fungi Foundation. Is it similar work that you do there? It's related. So the Fungi Foundation was started by Juliana Ferci, an amazing 
um, Chilean mycologist who has been campaigning for fungi to be included within conservation frameworks um, for, for some time now uh, with great success. So a lot of the time, the, the um, agreements, um, the conventions that we come up with to describe the world, say flora, meaning plants, and fauna, meaning animals, but don't say fungi uh, or funga, uh, as the term is. Um, so when we don't when we don't say that word, we ignore a, a, a huge portion of um, of the living world. We ignore this whole kingdom of macroscopic life, um, and and that creates problems for us um, as we try to both make sense of the world around us and also protect it. Um, and so the Fungi Foundation does all sorts of work with fungi and, and campaigning for the inclusion of this third F, the fungi, is yeah. is one aspect of, of their work. Um, but I do, yeah, anyone who who's moved, um, I do suggest uh, going to um, going to their website and and, and looking at the, the many exciting projects that they're up to. Mm. So for for people looking to get an education on on fungi or to maybe even taking a step into being like an amateur amateur mycologist and and joining joining the front what do you recommend because i i can personally say to people listening to this podcast read entangled life i think it's brilliant um i'm sure you'd recommend your own book as well but for for an education where is the best place to go well it depends the kind of the, on the kind of um interest you have in fungi you know some people are into food and fungal foods in which case i would suggest I'm getting into fermentation if you're not already. Um, fermented drinks and fermented foods. Uh, that's a great way to have some kind of dynamic relationship with these organisms, not just fungi, of course, bacteria as well. Um, and to live in some kind of, yeah, living in a relationship with these organisms and just getting a feel for what these communities do. You know, when we have a jar of fermenting liquid, um, being fermented by successive waves of microbial populations, it's a kind of summary of life. Like the living world is, um, we live in uh, and sustained by vast biogeochemical cycles um, that happen over enormous timescales. Um, and it's very easy to forget that that's all going on. Uh, but when you're, you know, a jar of fermenting chilies in its way provides a small window into the way that life happens and the hot sauce that those chilies make makes everything taste better. So you can taste what's going on um, with your own unaided senses. So fermentation is a big one for me, at least. So um, then if you're interested just to get a feeling for these organisms, you can just go and pay attention to them outside. You know, that's one way to go, just to take an interest um, and um, to notice, to stop and notice when you see one, to look up, um, you know, who it is uh, and who it lives with. Um, or to grow, get a mushroom grow kit and let them grow in your house or home. Um, watch them unfold um, and that's another uh, way to, and you can eat them afterwards another way mm -hmm. to, um, to to take an interest um, there are great, many great books um, there's uh, a book called The Radical Mycology uh, which is um, by someone called Peter McCoy which is a vast resource uh, dealing with all sorts of aspects of fungal life um, from the history of human fungal relationships to um, cultivation techniques. There are a number of great books on fungal cultivation for those wanting to get more into that side of things. Um, many great guidebooks for foragers, for the people who want to get into that side of things. Um, and um, 
and an increasing number of books on 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 the history of fungal knowledge and fungal law um in, in different human cultures around the world so yeah it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a one of those annoying it depends answers yeah 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 well i i think most most answers do come down to that i think when, when you're looking for a for a, a best it always depends on 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 what you are looking for so maybe i won't ask for the best next time um Malin, what what would you say is the best mushroom to grow and eat yourself i know i've just said i won't say the best but i've just done it again well i um you personally that's what i mean oh uh, yeah well i've got <laughs> i've just inoculated some logs with um shiitake and with lion's mane both of which i love to eat um i think they're delicious and in different ways um so um so those are two options that i'd suggest but um oyster mushrooms are very easy um and so um those might be a good place for to, to start they're also delicious um um, but there are tons of options, and it depends depends how you're growing them. Are you going to grow get a kit? Are you going to inoculate logs? Are you going to um, try and be a bit inventive? Um, it depends. Yeah, it depends on on where you want to take it. There are lots and lots of options and ways in which you can grow mushrooms at at home. Absolutely, People can become mycologists over the span of, I guess, a few weeks once once it's harvested. Wow, um, I've I've seen a lot of um, mushroom products being being brought to the front, and I, I don't know what what your position is on this, but there are some pretty outstanding claims being made uh, by the sellers of of these products, especially in relation to, I want to say, reishi, chaga, and lion's mane. I think they might be like the main three that I see. Lion's mane, um is the the one that quite literally looks like a lion's mane it looks like someone's pushed play-doh through a few holes right and i think that the claim is that it will stop dementia or reduce the chance of dementia do you think people should be careful when it comes to what is probably essentially white wellness uh getting into the fungal world i think there are lots of reasons to be um suspicious about the hyperactive wellness industrial complex um, <laughs> and there are also plenty of um plenty to rescue from the wellness industrial yeah. complex um, i i i i it's 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 a big um and diverse conglomeration of, of human activities um and these fungi you mentioned in particular, you know, the medicinal fungi, it's a huge field. And again, like so much of fungal life neglected. Um, the history of modern medicine has been transformed by fungal medicines, by fungal compounds. And penicillin is an obvious example. Psilocybin, the active compound in magic mushrooms, is another. Um, there are many others besides. So um, chaga and reishi have been used for a very, very long time. Um, by by humans to solve all sorts of problems to maintain health and um and there are plenty of studies uh, a growing number of studies into the different ways that they might influence um our bodies and mm. um help us to um overcome different kinds of problem and i completely agree with you that 
many of the claims that are made for them are um, are massively overhyped. I know people who have Alzheimer's um, who have not been helped by um, lion's mane. Um, I also know people who um, who have been helped by lion's mane. So you know, there's there's a lack of of human clinical studies um, into these compounds and um, and it's difficult for to motivate drug companies to or to motivate people to do that because it's very expensive to push compounds through these studies mm. um and drug companies on the whole uh, don't do it with natural compounds natural products because it's, it's not possible to patent the end product so what you have is a situation where there's an impossibly high bar for for um many traditional medicines to reach uh, and so they are um, thought of as lacking um, uh, demonstrable, well, there's there's too few studies, mm. um, but actually it's very difficult to do the studies that you would you would need for them to um, to count. Um, so it's a difficult, it's a thorny problem, and not one that affects um, not just fungi but sorts of plant medicines as well. Um, yeah. So yeah, I um, I encourage anyone who's interested in, in that field to 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 read more about it. There's a great book called The Fungal Pharmacy um, by Robert Rogers. Okay. Um, and the um, medicinal fungi, the human clinical trials, also by Robert Rogers. We've seen quite recently, even in the UK, which I honestly I never would have thought I'd seen people doing experiments with psilocybin mushrooms uh, in relation to treatment resistant depression. In is it King's College? I think I saw a Netflix documentary not so long ago. Maybe um, Imperial. Yes, yeah, yeah. Imperial There's a few places now. It's, yeah. it's now blo- it's now blossomed. It's happening all over the place. So yeah, um, yeah. Uh, are you you particularly hopeful for for that, or what was your experience? I think the psychedelics have a huge amount of um, potential to help humans overcome all sorts of different problems. Um, they're not for everybody. Um, they can be. Um, very unruly experiences that that, mm-hmm. that might not be helpful for people um, under certain circumstances. But I think there's a huge amount um, uh, of promise. Um, and, and this is not a new idea. And it's, this is really important mm. that humans have been taking psychoactive substances to get better, to maintain health, to pray, to connect with the living world and with each other, to form community, to maintain community, to do all these kinds of things that help keep humans healthy uh, for an unknowably long time. This is not some new discovery it's rather that modern science is catching up um with yeah. traditional knowledge um and that's something that some is sometimes forgotten in all of this talk uh, about psychedelics in this new wave of psychedelic research that's going on right now mm. yeah i think it, it's going to be a struggle because just the attitude towards anything that alters consciousness that isn't coffee cigarettes or alcohol uh gets kind of pushed to the wayside right which is a real shame I, um, is there anything that you, you know, just before we wrap this up, that would blow the mind of the listener in relation to, to fungi? Uh, another one that makes me go blank. Um, <laughs> but I think I would just say that thinking about the fungi, thinking about the fungi makes the world look different. Uh, and that these are organisms that can soften the categories that we use to organize our lives our cultures our philosophies our politics our economies um and that um and i would encourage anyone who has even the faintest bit of interest to to pursue that and um 
I think there's a lot that fungi can teach us and um, and many ways that we can partner with these astonishing organisms as we look forward to the future of life on a damaged planet. And that is the end of that podcast. So thank you very much for listening, you absolute legend. Hopefully some of you are feeling inspired and you're going to be amateur mycologist and maybe even beyond amateur one day. If that is the case and you do want to get into it, in the description, of course, there is Urban Farm It. They will teach you. And it's pretty cheap, I'm not going to lie. It's good. Uh, books, Entangled Life. Merlin narrates it on Audible. It's beautiful. And I've read a little bit as well. And it is so nice to read. He's a very poetic writer. So I hope you enjoyed that podcast. Thank you very much. I don't know when I'll be back. I love you. Goodbye.